Good morning. Let's get straight to markets. Take a look at the impact for the indices. Factual. Succinct. All you need to know before your trading day starts. Subscribe to our newsletter, CNBC's Daily Open. Beyond the Valley. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the world of tech. I'm Tom Chitty and with me is CNBC's senior tech correspondent Arjun Karpal. After a five-week trial, it took less than five hours for a jury of 12 at the Southern District of New York Courthouse to find Sam Bankman-Fried guilty of all seven financial criminal charges brought against him. While unlikely, the man known as the King of Crypto could now face more than 100 years in prison. We'll be finding out some of the more interesting subplots from a CNBC journalist that has been following the trial from the start. We'll also discuss what SBF's meteoric fall means for crypto and whether this will leave a lasting impression for investors when it comes to digital currencies. Beyond the Valley. Arjun, lovely to be uh, seeing your face for real this time. Yeah, it was, it was an experience, the remote podcast, while I was uh, sort of roaming around talking about AI and things like that. Yeah, nice to be... We're back in the studio. Yeah, exactly. We pulled it off just... Um, but yeah, it's definitely nice to be back uh, back here. Um, how's your week been? It's been good. House renovations, Tom. Mm. Uh, this might be something a lot of our listeners can relate to. But you know, when you think about the house renovations, and you think, you know, you're gonna you're gonna paint, and it's gonna look wonderful, and the whole experience is gonna be magical, and you sort of almost romanticize this idea of you know doing your own house and, and whatever else. Uh, you know, we've got builders doing it, but I mean, just some of the... the I'm imagining a scene from The Notebook. Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly like that. And you think, it's going to be wonderful and I'm going to paint and it's going to just... And it's just a horrendous experience. The entire thing is horrible, from from delays to the builders, to the painting, to the cold, to waiting for things. You know, You know that phrase, it's like watching paint dry. Mm-hmm. I literally have been watching paint dry. You know you can go and do other things whilst that paint is drying. I'm sure there's other jobs that you could be getting on with. The problem is it's like deadlines. You know, the build is delayed and the kitchen fitters are coming and then I've, you know, but I've got to paint and I need to, you know, watch it dry mm. so that as soon as it's dry, second coat. You're, you're straight in. Yeah. Uh, so this is taking up your weekends, I imagine. Not only week, it's like I come to work to escape um, the renovations mm. and, and, and the general stress of that. Um, works lovely. I, you know, I was on air today uh, talking about Super Mario and Nintendo. How fun is that? How enjoyable is that? That that does sound stressful. Yeah, but otherwise everything's good. Yeah, good. Well, I, I you know, I had uh, Guy Fawkes night, but we didn't actually go and see any fireworks. Also, I was thinking about Guy Fawkes night. It's not a thing that sort of has been exported to the wider international audience. So for our listeners, it is a day of celebration i choose my words carefully here uh, about a man who tried to blow up the houses of parliament and failed yeah it's it's always been a confusing one i think maybe because of that lack of universal appeal maybe why it's not exported quite like you know halloween halloween's everywhere yeah but you uh, people would reckon would know guy fawkes from the masks yeah. right from the masks uh, from the yeah. mask. and um, they may have heard of him yeah um but there were a lot of fire. I, I love fireworks. 
Yeah. Let's talk about fireworks and uh, more talk about what's coming up later in the episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Battle of the Bots with Elon Musk uh, revealing Grok, a new AI bot to re- rival ChatGPT. But 24 hours after that announcement, Microsoft-backed OpenAI, the makers of ChatGPT, announced GPT-4 Turbo, its most powerful AI yet. And the AI news doesn't stop there. $500 million of fresh funds has been raised for Europe's answer to OpenAI. Finally, Super Mario Maker Nintendo has had its own power-up with the Japanese video game company raising sales and profit forecasts for this year. But before we get back to our main story, we've got to hear Arjun's stat of the week. $32 billion. You stole my pen. $32 billion. All right. Okay. Pens always go missing. Oh, yeah, they do. It's like a thing in an office. $32 billion. Brilliant. Um, Okay, we'll think about that. Um, Just to remind our listeners that if you have any questions on what we've discussed this week or past episodes, then email beyondthevalley at cnbc.com and we will talk about them, answer them right here on the podcast. But back to our main story. Last week, in a downtown Manhattan court, 31-year-old FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty of fraud and money laundering in a landmark criminal verdict. To discuss the trial and the fallout, I'm pleased to say hello to CNBC's award-winning tech reporter, Mackenzie Sigalos. Mackenzie, thanks for joining us on Beyond the Valley. Hey, thanks for having me. Before we get into discussing the trial... I want to first flag to our listeners that Mackenzie wrote a brilliant article for CNBC about what it was like to cover the trial. I've read it and I feel exhausted for you, Mackenzie. (laughs) Have you managed to recover from what sounded like a very stressful assignment? It was a wild five weeks and I did sleep all weekend, so I'm feeling more like myself again. Um, But it was a lot more fun than I thought it would be being cut off from electronics uh, for over a month. (laughs) Is that your digital detox? It really was. So it was hard on day one. And also, you don't think about it, but having a non-smart watch is essential because most of the time you don't have access to a clock when you're waiting for two hours in a queue to get into an overflow courtroom. Um, So you have no sense of time. You have no connection to the outside world. And it is kind of a harrowing experience before you learn like the insider pro tips. Mackenzie, let's just let's just take it a step back for a second, though. Um, what was the crux of this case? So you had uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, one of the one of the founders of FTX, this massive crypto exchange, um, and then you had another company called Alameda, which was sort of a hedge fund. What 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 was the relationship between these two companies, and ultimately, how did that boil down to what the crux of the the case was and the and the allegations towards uh, SBF? Yeah, so both companies were founded by Sam Bankman Fried. Alameda Research was a crypto hedge fund that he started in 2017, mainly to take advantage of uh, you know, the arbitrage and pricing of Bitcoin. So back then, if you could buy Bitcoin on one exchange in Korea, more than likely you could sell it at a premium on another exchange. It was something called the kimchi swap. And so there were these huge price differentials. Um, specifically within the world of Bitcoin, and Sam wanted to capitalize on that. He had spent three and a half years at Jane Street doing just that, but the margins were way bigger in the crypto world early on. And so he created this trading shop, Alameda. um, And then two years later, he made the move 
kind of impromptu. He, he had set up shop in California with Alameda and then went to a conference in Hong Kong, like immediately hit it off with a bunch of people and realized that that was the center of the crypto world in 2019. He could get a lot more business done. And so impromptu moved the business there. And that's when he first got this idea to start a futures crypto exchange. So rather than just one that's uh, based on you know, the, the spot price of Bitcoin, letting people borrow money and, and, and trade futures. And it, and it did also offer the properties of a spot exchange, but that's kind of where FTX was born. Now, in terms of the relationship between these two companies, they needed a market maker. So, you know, Alameda would be the one to help create a, you know, a market for different coins, make sure that there was enough liquidity so that, um, you know, especially in some of the smaller coins so that people at any time, if they wanted to sell a coin, there was a buyer for that coin. Now, typically you, there is a conflict of interest in having the same person run those two types of entities. You want them to be separate. Now, the crux of this case comes down to seven criminal counts against Bankman Freed. Two of those counts are conspiracy, uh, or I'm sorry, two counts are related to fraud, five counts of conspiracy, and they relate to the fact that the close relationship between these two shops culminated in uh, years worth of Alameda borrowing FTX customer deposits. I, I want to just quickly touch upon the the people that worked at FTX and the fact the well the role that they played in getting this guilty verdict for Sam Bankman-Fried how influential do you think it was for their testimony in in getting that result oh my god it was it was everything for the government because i mean yeah there are a lot of there are hundreds of exhibits that they put into the bank of evidence but at the end of the day what i found to be the most relatable um for part of their case was the testimony from people who not only were uh, part of the C-suite at Alameda and FTX and so could very intimately speak to uh, the crimes that they committed, which, by the way, they admit, like they pleaded guilty. So it's not like they were just trying to go free saying that Sam did it all. Like they were literally like speaking to their role in this crime, which also uh, lended a great deal of credibility to the stories that they were telling. And, and the flip side of this is that the people who turned on Sam Bankman-Fried weren't just his top lieutenants at the companies that he ran. They were also his lifelong friends. We're talking, so his CTO at FTX, who was also the lesser known co-founder of Alameda and FTX, Gary Wong, was his best friend from high school math camp. And then they went to MIT together and they lived in the same like, you know, uh, they, I think they keep calling it the nerd frat where they would like play board games and not drink. And it was a, you know, uh, very PG lifestyle. But then, you know, the other top witness uh, for the prosecution was Caroline Ellison. She was a CEO, well, co-CEO at one point of Alameda Research, but also critically, Sam Bankman-Fried's on-again, off-again girlfriend, his roommate uh, in that $35 million penthouse in the Bahamas. So the people who turned on him... And, and those are just two of many people who had been in his life for years who took the stand. And so he's visibly upset, um, you know, as he's listening to this testimony. At time, I mean, Caroline's testimony lasted across a few days. Uh, same with Gary, another person. Adam was his one of his best friends from college. Like, these are people who knew him inside out, and they were betraying him. Like, it was a very difficult thing for Sam, and I think very effective with the jury. And, and the prosecution was quick to front load those witnesses. They just wanted to get all of those punches in. And what, what one quick thing I'll say is that 
you know, the, the government's case went way faster than it was supposed to, I think in part because they felt like they were winning. So they were going to go to some of like the, you know, lesser name witnesses and they, they knocked those people off the list and just got right to their blockbuster, um, their blockbuster names on that list. And it seemed to be effective with the jury. And, and and there really was blockbuster testimony, you know, stories which, you know, have been spun out into long reads written by other other journalists who aren't really covering the trial itself particularly, but maybe covering, you know, the celebrities that were involved with FTX. Any any stories that you sort of heard in that court that you thought was pretty wild or really, really stuck in your memory? Yeah. So, so Nishad Singh, who was the director of engineering at FTX, I. Uh, he, they, the government used him as uh, the point at which they were able to bring in a lot of concern around the celebrity endorsements. And so Nishad was basically speaking to the fact that he was very concerned by the excessive spending, like these, you know, K5, which is um, a company run by Michael... Oh, I always pronounce his last name, and so did everyone in court. Kives. Um, but basically, you know, Sam was talking about the unprecedented access that he had to celebrities. Um, Katy Perry <laughs> came up multiple times. But, but but the point in all that was just that they they used it as this opportunity to bring from the uh, the bank of evidence this spreadsheet of all the spending on uh, wild celebrity endorsements. Tom Brady came up pretty early days, so before Nishad's testimony. Um, like for 20 hours of his time, like uh, uh, like tens of millions of dollars went to Tom Brady and his ex-wife, um, Giselle. And so it, it, I, I think that I think that for a jury, again, that's very relatable. Like uh, uh, when you see that FTX customer deposits are being spent on, um, you know, excessive celebrity uh, deals that give Sam access to spending time with said celebrities, it just kind of gets at your sense of justice and, and that not being right. So that, I, th- I think that was one thing um in terms of like this is smaller but it just stuck out to me so obviously with like caroline and sam uh having the troubled relationship that they did it was always sam walking away and and ultimately he was the one who called it quits on the relationship in spring of 2022 right before terra luna so right before the entire implosion of this industry um caroline got this remark in she was talking about when the fbi raided her house um, because she went back to her parents' house and um, she was talking about who was there with her. And she's like, well, yes, my boyfriend. And, and everybody, I was sitting in the overflow room with a, with a bunch of other journalists, among others. And we all were like, oh my gosh, who's her boyfriend? <laughs> 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 There's been this like new sense of intrigue over Caroline's love life. It, it, it's something out of a movie, Mackenzie. It's, it's just like, well, I'm waiting for the movie quite clearly. I, one of the most interesting things you said is how relatable I think uh, the prosecution uh, was trying to make their arguments. And, you know, we've spoken to a lot of executives in the crypto world. And uh, a lot of the time, you know, they, they've been trying to distance themselves from SBF, right? They've been trying to, and the whole FTX debacle, they've been saying, this is not a, this is not a crypto problem. This is straight up fraud. And that was a similar argument from the prosecution as well, wasn't it? Do you think this, to some extent, draws a line in the sand in any way for, for, for the crypto industry? Yeah, I think that that is the go-to narrative. A lot of for, especially for those CEOs of the centralized exchanges that are still standing. I just did this um, panel prep call. I'm, I'm doing the future of centralized exchanges. It's a panel as part of DC FinTech Week. 
Um, and I've got a few uh, like CEOs on there. And, and it does. It comes back to that common refrain of this is not a crypto problem, but this is a bad actor problem. And that's the case with any industry. And so, you know, since the washout last spring, I think that I've been to a lot of crypto conferences um, and, and it, it returns to that same um, and not just that common refrain, but also this idea that, it you know, bear markets in general and then and then. Um, you know, these this this series of bankruptcies and is a is a is a welcome washout of the industry because it bra- it you know it takes out the grifters, it allows time to build quietly and and develop a strong product. So that is like the go to narrative. I I mean I I don't know. <laughs> I'm more skeptical than I than I was before. Um, but we'll see. And 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 one other thing I will say is that we're not done yet with like this series of of um, trials. You got Alex Mashinsky from Celsius who's up next with SDNY. Some of the people I was sitting with um, in the courtroom were were not journalists, but they were lawyers uh, for other firms who were like, you know, testing out witnesses, seeing what they did, how they did on the stand, if they were somebody that should be brought in the, in the context of their case. Um, so that was really interesting to me too. Like we're, we're kind of at the beginning. Even Sam potentially has a second trial coming up in March. Are you looking forward to that? To that? <laughs> to, <laughs> covering a second trial? Uh. You'll need. You'll probably need three months, three or four months <laughs> off to to get you ready for that. Um, I just want to uh, quickly touch on inside that those overflow rooms. Uh, you you wrote about it. It was fascinating reading. Um, but you know things like the poker chips that you were getting for your when you checked in your stuff and <laughs> that you got black poker chips, which meant something different to other coloured poker chips. Um, I also love the vaping in the overflow courtrooms that some people may or may not have been doing. Um, uh, there was the $100,000 for potential spillage Spilled of coffee. coffee, yeah, and, and starbursts and chocolates. And Ben McKenzie, Ryan from OC, if anyone doesn't know who Ben McKenzie is. <laughs> what? What is going on? What is going on? That's <laughs> I what know. I wanted. That <laughs> it was... Are you sure you were in a courtroom? <laughs> Okay, so the way that it, the way that it works at 500 Pearl Street, which is one of the two courthouses of SDNY, is that you've got the main. So the main courtroom is on the 26th floor. It's the penthouse level of this building, and um, there are 21 highly coveted seats for journalists. Uh, now, on the day of like a Sam Bankman-free testimony, uh, for example, you would have to get in line at probably 10 p.m. the night before. The 21st seat was locked by 3 a.m. So like these these are seats where like you need to really commit to it. know that you're going to pull an all-nighter and then you've got a dedicated chair in that courtroom. Now, the flip side are something called the overflow rooms. And those were on the 23rd and the 24th floors. And that's that's where it got a little bit wild. (laughs) That's where you had like a room packed with journalists. You had a little bit more flexibility with the rules. So like I would smuggle in coffee in um, like an opaque water bottle because like somebody uh, had spilled their coffee and like, to re- and the carpets are very nice and they're like custom done. So to replace that patch of carpet, it was $100,000. So I understand why the rules are so strict. Wow. But like if I'm in there like listening to testimony for hours on end and like I can't, like that's a thing. Like you don't, the transcripts, the official transcripts from the day don't come out till end of day. So you have to scribble in your notebook as fast as you possibly can to get exact quotes, to get all the color that you want. Um, so there is a limited amount of time and uh, you really can't step out. Like I, there were no bathroom breaks really um, because the way that works in court is that like you have one mid-morning break around somewhere between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. 
you've got lunch, you've got a mid-afternoon break, and then it's end of day. Those breaks are not for relaxing. Like that's when I would sprint out of the courtroom because the mid-morning break was 15 minutes max. And so I've got to get from the 23rd floor down to the ground level, sprint like a football length field out of the courtroom to <laughs> a car with a CNBC television like photog who was kind enough to let me stash my electronics with him. I would get my laptop, I would write my notes up as fast as I possibly could, like like write a story if I could. Sometimes I would just be able to dispatch reporting to my editors in San Francisco, run back through security. And that, okay, so the poker chips you were talking about, basically when you go through security, they have different color like poker chips to signify the number of electronics that you have. And so like certain colors mean, oh God, you're going to be in line forever checking a laptop, two phones, like an Apple watch, but a black poker chip, which was what I always got meant zero electronics. <laughs> so that meant that I could. So zoom. you were, you were through quickly, yeah. no messing around. Well, how did you get the black poker chips? Because you, 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 you'd confirmed from day one that you didn't have any electronics. Well, yeah, but every single time you go through that security line, it, uh, it's a it's a fresh test of how many electronics you have. But like, I became known as the girl who had like the clear Auburn University tote bag, and so I would put my candy in there, my Starburst in there, my water bottle with coffee in there, <laughs> no electronics, and they would let me zoom through that line. And it, it's not just crucial to get up there fast; it's also probably more important on the back end because you'd have a line of like twenty people waiting for their electronics with their you know, with their, um, you know, their little check code thing. And I, that was something I could run past to go outside to file faster. It sounds like a, almost like, you know, there's a game show that could be spun out of this, um, you know. <laughs> like so, a sort of trial. Like, yeah, like, you for, know. For, yeah, like, like a relay race. An game, assault course. Assault oh, course. But totally. through a court. And <laughs> it was actually like halfway, halfway through the trial, I had to go to Money 2020. And it just happened to coincide with the judge, like Judge Lewis Kaplan, also having to go to a conference. So I didn't miss any court. But at Money 2020 in the US is held in Las Vegas. And so like obviously poker chips everywhere. And I was like, ooh, it feels like I'm at court again. <laughs> you should have taken uh, your black poker chip from the court and just put it, yeah, you know, put it down on the, the roulette table, table. See if they'll take it. Um, <laughs> Before we let you go, uh, I just want to talk a little bit about sentencing for our, for our listeners. Um, that's not going to happen until March, late March, I believe, next year. What can we um, anticipate that sentencing will be? Yeah, I'm, that's the question on everybody's mind. So March twenty eighth, nine thirty a.m. That's when we get a sen like that's when we get the sentencing for the these seven convictions. I mentioned earlier, there's a second trial potentially that the government will bring. Um, we'll know like around February whether or not they're going to bring that case or not. But in terms of maximum sentence, for all of these crimes, it could be north of 100 years. But there are guidelines that judges are given based upon, like, you know, prior offenses or was anybody harmed in the context of this crime? And, and so I talked to a, a ton of former federal prosecutors. They kind of converged on this idea that they, they thought at least around 20 years, like there is typically this inclination for a judge to, you know, give the... Um, you know, the offender, the ability to rehabilitate, still have a life for themselves. So whereas Bernie Madoff, uh, you know, he's older. And so he got a life, got 150 years, but, you know, he was at the end of his life. Sam is 31 years old. And so uh, there is this thought that, I mean, not that 20 years is lenient, but compared to like the max sentence of 100 plus years, uh, you know, that's that's generous. So, but, but it's hard to say. Judge Kaplan was very annoyed, uh, not just with the defense 
team broadly, but with Sam Bankman-Fried in particular during his time on the stand, it was clear that he had no patience for the way that he was like skirting a lot of the prosecution's questions. Sam was pretty combative on the stand, and and and, and the judge would interject and like just say, "Answer the question." Like she asked you this, answer that. Um, and, and so he had no patience for him. So I'm 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 genuinely uh, I, for me it's a shot in the dark. Like I don't I don't know how he's going to come out on this. We'll be waiting, and we'll, I'm sure we'll. We'd like to get you back on the show um, when that when that does happen next year, um, and if there is another trial. Um, <laughs> we won't hear from Mackenzie if there's another trial. She'll be locked up in in the courtroom. Yeah, oh, exactly. no electronics. With chocolate. <laughs> You're no electronics. No, exactly. We'll have to send a, an old fashioned letter. Carry a pigeon. Well, thank you so much for. Uh, giving us your time and sharing some of those stories. It's brilliant insight. So I really appreciate it, Mackenzie. Yeah, thanks guys for having me. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Beyond the Fab. So what else is happening in the world of tech? The battle of the bots has really begun after Elon Musk revealed Grok, a new AI bot to rival ChatGPT. Argent, what does Grok mean? So it appears to be a verb that means to understand something intuitively or by empathy um, as he quickly sc- scrolls his yeah i'm just i'm just looking this up now quite <laughs> frankly uh, what it means but uh, apparently to understand something profoundly and intuitively so you know this is an ai chatbot grok and its job is to understand stuff uh, and then yeah give us an answer in relation to to prompts but it's a bit of a different chatbot isn't it it's modeled on Apparently, according to XAI, which is Elon Musk's AI company, it's modeled on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's supposed to have, quote, a bit of wit, quote, a rebellious streak, and it should answer the, quote, spicy questions that other AI might dodge. Now, I don't know what that means. Uh, Grok has access to data from X. And, you know, if you've used X, formerly known as Twitter, you know that it can uh, offer a variety of views um, on the world, shall we say. Um, it's only had two months of training. That's very, very small. Right. Um, so What's sort of like a, what we're, just to give a comparison, how much training has ChatGPT had, do you know? A lot more. Right, okay, <laughs> a okay, lot, okay, lot okay, more. Right. You know, think about when ChatGPT was released, um, you know. Are we talking years? You, no, perhaps not years, but certainly more many 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 months right it was released sort of the back end of last year wasn't Mm -hmm. it chat gpt and that's when it really kind of took off i feel so long ago but obviously you know in preparation for that there was more training that had sort of happened so it's far more advanced no doubt um and i think what what's interesting here is that you know a lot of commercial ai models will refuse to generate for example you know sexually explicit violent 
or, or say illegal content, you know, and they're, they're tried to be designed to avoid any kind of biases that might have come into training. Remember we've spoken about in the last podcast how, um, a previous podcast, how sort of a lot of these AI models are trained on huge amounts of data. Things like bias can creep into that, right? Uh, and so a lot of those models are, are designed to try to be as least biased as possible. That's not always easy to achieve. But what seems to be interesting with Grok is that in these sort of so-called description about these answering spicy questions, it's unclear at this point, you know, what kind of answers it may generate. Uh, and it's worrying as well when you think about someone like Elon Musk who's warned about the impact of AI on humanity and the dangers that come with AI. You know, many will look at this and say, well, is this, you know, is this irresponsible use of AI. It's this responsible development of AI. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and whether it gets to traction. Yeah, I mean, I find it kind of interesting that it's going to be built off of X and all of that data that it's gathered. So tweets that I may have written could potentially be used to help support that AI. Absolutely. So, did, I si did, did I sign up to that? No, how do you feel about that? I feel, yeah, I feel that's quite odd. And I, I don't know, I need to go back into my uh, privacy and agreement that I sign. <laughs> I mean, people will be thinking about that, though. You know, well, I didn't, you know, this, this AI bot could potentially make, you know, a lot of money. And it's built off of all these users' information, all their own intellectual information. So I think that's going to be a key point here is, is how is your data being used? And if, if, you know, X data is being used for training of this um, AI um, is that okay? Is that going to be something that, you know, particularly in Europe, when we spoke about it, when we talked about regulation, you know, the data privacy rules in Europe are a lot stricter than many other places in the world. Uh, and so will the European regulators take issue with this? I think they'll be looking at this very closely. That's without doubt. Uh, following on from that, we had the um, another announcement from Microsoft-backed OpenAI, um, and they've announced chat, or not chat, but GPT-4 Turbo, um, do we know much about that yet? I mean, it's only just happened, but again, it feels like this is turning into the new space race, but I was kind of, kind of trying to come up with a better word for AI, fly something. Anyway, never mind. Uh, but, but, but it feels like, you know, we're going to be hearing a lot of these, you know, new updates from com from these various competitors trying to outdo each other. Almost weekly, right? Or, or sometimes daily, there's new, there's new announcements. GPT-4 Turbo... OpenAI, this is the company behind ChatGPT. So we got a bit more details in that um, it now provides answers uh, with context up to April 2023, which is a lot more recent because previously um, those answers were cut off at Jan 2022. Um, there's more inputs. So, you know, you can ask it, you can ask it more things and you can ask it more detailed things. Uh, but the big thing also, it allows, uh, the latest version allows people to make their own personalized chatbots. If you're a business, um, you're worried about putting your data into, let's say, ChatGPT, the public version. Here, it looks like you can make sort of more specific versions for your business, but also I think you and I potentially could just make our own chatbot. Should we do, should we do a Beyond the Valley chatbot? Yeah. What, how, how would we use it? It'd just do the whole episode for us. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Would it record our voice or? I don't know. I don't know. It's scary. Actually, no, maybe. We shouldn't have made no, that public. Cause... No, we are the real people. We are not robots. We are not chatbots. We'll make that clear. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a new trend. You know, the, the whole chatbot 
craze. Um, that's where it seems to be going, you know, the ability to be able to customize these chatbots to, to the context you need. Yeah, and if it can cut costs for businesses, then they'll definitely use it as well, I imagine. But do you know when you're trying to get in contact with customer services mm. and you've got to talk to a chatbot and it's the most infuriating thing? Yeah. Because it's all preset answers. And they actually can't answer the specific query you have. Yeah, because it's always a specific query. Otherwise, you could just go to the FAQ section That's it. And, and get it from there. So yeah. um, just note to companies that use those. Please don't. <laughs> um, okay, uh, in other AI news, um, we've had uh, Europe's answer to OpenAI get some fresh funds, $500 million worth. Um, how significant is that? Yeah, Aleph Alpha. Uh, is the company. It's got backing from Bosch, the sort of appliance maker, and, and, and SAP, the mm-hmm. cloud company, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise as well. Um, it's sort of, yeah, the European answer to open AI. And it is significant because, you know, Europe now, there are a number of companies that are popping up uh, with these foundational models. I, you know, the likes of ch- that ChatGPT have to train their, uh, uh, sorry, open AI have to train ChatGPT. Uh, and these foundational models are key. And I think, you know, as we go forward, there's going to be a lot of models and, you know, some are going to win out and, and some won't. Uh, and that's that's wh- what part of this kind of cycle we're in right now. And so raising fresh funds is big. It gives this company impetus to continue to train models. And uh, and it's expensive, you know, lots of chips, lots of servers required, lots of computing power. Um, but also the other interesting thing here is Europe's going down this path where they're putting a lot of emphasis, and maybe this is something we can dig into further in another episode, around this idea of data sovereignty, where data needs to be stored in Europe if it's going to be in regards to European people, uh, EU citizens. And so that then means, you know, if you are something like an open AI and you're processing data for European customers, you may need servers and, 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 and basically compute in the European Union. Now, if, alternatively, if you're a European company born in Europe, you know, founded in Europe and all your operations are here in Europe, that may be more appealing. So if companies are, uh, uh, you know, foreign companies are looking to set up shop in, in the European Union or increase, uh, you know, some of these new services like AI services and they want them, they may look for a European alternative that already is set up here, that already has business and and sort of their data generated, uh, stored and processed here. And that's perhaps where some of these European challenges may find some success. Okay. Um, And finally, we've got a story um, out uh, from Nintendo. The Super Mario Maker has just raised sales and profit forecast for this year. Um, Is that off back of some um, exciting news or they're releasing some new games or films or what is it? This is a fascinating story if you follow sort of the gaming world. Nintendo's... uh Switch, its flagship console, is now into its seventh year. It's quite, uh, you know, an old console by console standards now, and everyone's wondering, well, has it reached its peak? Uh, when is there going to be a new Nintendo console? And the funny thing is, is it's got a new sort of boost, uh, a new breath of, of fresh air and new life this year because of the Super Mario Brothers movie. What's happened is a lot of people have gone out and bought the Switch, so they can play Mario games. So there's this halo effect that's been created over over Nintendo because of the film. Uh, and people are buying like old Mario games 
uh, you know, from like 2017 um, and, you know, near where the Switch came out uh, and they're buying a Switch console and that kind of then brings in new buyers to the Switch who are then buying other games. Uh, on top of that, um, Nintendo released a game called The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, very popular franchise, the Zelda franchise, um, and that's helped raise their uh, their forecast for the year. Look, Nintendo is one of these companies that has recognizable characters. You don't need to be a gamer to know Mario, right? And so that's where their strength is. And so they're showing, I think, uh, that they can continue to use that strong brand, characters, IP, put it into films, wherever else, and that will drive uh, sales. And a new generation of Super Mario lovers, gamers. And that's what I've seen it firsthand, actually. You know, my nieces and nephews, they're, they're playing with Mario stuff and, and, and other Nintendo IP because, you know, of the movie. And now they want to, now they've got Switch. And that's, that's basically what's happening, right? And it is it. And those are going to be players who then may, when Nintendo brings out a new console, buy the new Nintendo, right? And, that, and that's what they're trying to create here. Okay, um, before we finish, uh, let's do Stat of the Week. Uh, what did I tell you? $32 billion. $32 billion. That's how much... Um, you, got it, you got it right last week. Can you do two weeks in a row? How much FTX was worth at the peak of its power? Well done. Bravo. <laughs> Two in a row. It was a long delay. Unbelievable. Um, you're going for the hat trick next week. I know. I've got, I'm going to make it more... I feel like I've gone lax. Do I get an award? Or maybe next week if I if get it. Do, I think it was too easy three. this week. I think it was too easy. This if you do three, I'll, I'll, I'll reward you. Okay. With something, with something. Maybe a plaque. Yeah. What do you think? A plaque? A medal? Pla yeah. Plaques maybe two grand. Yeah, maybe. I don't know where I put... But, I'm not sure I'd be allowed to put it up yeah. in the house. but Maybe a chocolate bar? Oh, it could be nice to put it next to my desk, though, the plaque. Oh, uh, mm, yeah. Maybe if you go on a real big, you know, streak, yeah. winning streak, yeah. then, then a plaque's in order. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get a round of applause when we head back to the office. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. Um, okay, that's it for this episode. Um, but before we go, please remember to follow and subscribe to the show and... If you have any questions on today's episode, then beyondthevalley at cnbc.com is the place to write to. Um, a big thank you, firstly, to Mackenzie for her fantastic insight into the SBF trial. And thank you to you, Arjun. Thank you, Tom. We'll be back next week for another episode of Beyond the Valley. Goodbye. Beyond the Fabulous.